Welcome to Crashing the War Party, where my co-host Daniel Larson and I work diligently each week to help bring new insights into old foreign policy and national security thinking. Over the last year, we have brought you some of the best authors, journalists, and activists trying to change the way Washington approaches issues of war and peace, politics, and history. Last week, we talked to progressive Eric Sperling about how the conversation on Capitol Hill might change after the midterm elections and a possible GOP takeover of the House. In our next segment, we will talk to Jim Antle, politics editor at the conservative Washington Examiner, about how those elections shaped up and the prospects of a rising restraint movement in the GOP. But first, there's been a whole lot of news on the other side of the world in Indonesia, where the G20 meetings are being held this week. Monday dawned with a big face-to-face with Chinese President Xi Jinping and U.S. President Joe Biden, the first in-person meeting between the two top leaders, U.S. and China, since before the pandemic. There was a whiff of optimism after the three-hour event in which both sides hinted at a new spirit of cooperation. Before they even met, the narrative fed to reporters was that the two superpower leaders aimed on Monday to, quote, manage their differences in the competition for global influence. According to Biden, she has agreed to resume climate change talks in the United States. The two reportedly agreed to resume the same kind of top-level contacts on other matters, too, critical to global stability, including debt relief and other issues on the more thorny issues of Taiwan and Russia-Ukraine. President Biden objected directly to China's, quote, coercive and increasingly aggressive actions towards China, um, but he did say that he uh, was, that we are not, you know, as a country, are not um, diverting from the one China policy, uh, nor strategic ambiguity when it comes to uh, China and Taiwan. And um, Xi, according to Chinese government's account of the meeting, quote, stressed that the Taiwan question is at the very core of China's core interests and the bedrock of the political foundation of China-U.S. relations in the first red line that must not be crossed. Um, But he also discussed and reaffirmed their shared belief that the use or even the threat of nuclear weapons in the Ukraine conflict would be, quote, totally unacceptable. So it sounds like a bit of a a mixed bag here, Dan. um, It seems like we have a little bit of good news, um, but is it just window dressing um, and and your, your typical perception management or... Is there something more here that 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 perhaps that we can hang our hat on? Um, I, well, I think uh, Biden and she said a lot of the right things about cooperation and avoiding conflict. Um, Biden's rhetoric about there being no need for a new Cold War was certainly welcome. Uh, but I and I think it was important that they meet and that they say those things because the the U.S.-China relationship is in need of uh, some serious damage control to stop things from deteriorating further. Uh, and, and we saw some belated repair work uh, to fix everything that's been broken over the last year and a half. Um, of course, uh, there are still many issues, as you as you said, uh, that are creating a, a rift or creating uh, irritants in the relationship. Uh, obviously, Biden's move to cut off China from access to U.S.-made computer chips through export controls is a, a major change in the way that the U.S. and China are dealing with each other. Some era tariffs remain in place, and they don't seem to be going anywhere anytime soon. And then, of course, Taiwan is is the major irritant to the relationship. Uh, the, I guess the good news is that Biden didn't start freelancing again on Taiwan. and didn't start offering up uh, new commitments out of the blue like he has done before. 
Uh, he, he was, I think he stayed on the script this time. Uh, and, and that's certainly an improvement over what we've seen in the last year. Um, but I think what, what we're seeing is the, the sort of the bare, returning to the bare minimum of a normal relationship with China. Uh, that's not especially, uh, cordial or cooperative, but it is at least you know, minimally functional. Uh, one of the, the analysts, uh, that I saw talking about the meeting, uh, this week, uh, I think got it right as, uh, Lyle Goldstein, friend of the show, uh, from Defense Priorities, uh, who emphasized, uh, that it, uh, as I was saying, the meeting seems to have accomplished the minimum, he said, creating the potential for stabilizing the relationship. Uh, he added, uh, that requires robust follow-up and a determination on both sides to break with trends in both countries toward vitriolic rhetoric and escalating tension. So the the real question is, will there be follow-up on uh, some of the progress made in Bali, uh, or are they going to go back and retreat to their corners and, and go back to doing what they've been doing the last year and a half uh, in, in driving more and more wedges uh, in between the U.S. and China as, as they've been doing? Uh, the, as I was saying, the, the talk about not needing a new Cold War is certainly welcome, but it doesn't seem to really comport with the direction that U.S. policy has been going in. Uh, if we weren't pursuing uh, a clear containment strategy, if we weren't pursuing something like a Cold War rivalry, why we would not be pursuing something like these very aggressive export controls on chips, uh, which is clearly aimed not only at blunting Chinese power, but, but actually slowing down Chinese economic growth overall. And so it's not just that the U.S. objects to certain things that China does in, uh, with regard to its neighbors, but that it's actually kind of striking at the Chinese economy directly in a way that's, that's much more, I think, pointed and aggressive than what we've seen before. And so if, if this isn't a Cold War approach, I don't know what would be. Uh, so th there is this gap between what Biden's saying and what he's been doing. And I think the, the Chinese government is going to see that gap and, and realize that these uh, these claims about not wanting a Cold War are not really credible. Yeah, and I was wondering, and maybe you can answer this because this is an honest question. Why now? I feel like as long as our show has been uh, being uh, produced We've had this long, never-ending conversation about all of the missed opportunities for this kind of dialogue, this kind of um, public show of cooperation. It seems that every time the two have met, whether it be over Zoom call or high-level uh, officials from each each side have met, it has been dominated with talk about like, hey, stop poking us, hey, stop provoking us. Hey, stand down on on Taiwan. Hey, stand down on on um, you know fill in the blank. In this particular instance, I feel like the perception of peace, or at least an attempt at cooperation, prevailed over all the other talk, which was included. Like we said at the beginning, there was a little bit of pushback on. Taiwan, for example, uh, aggressive behavior, coercive behavior. But I'm thinking with the U.S. feeling that it has shown Russia who, boss, who the boss is 
And this idea that China might be looking at what has been going on in Ukraine and taking that on board, uh, perhaps not wanting to, quote, accelerate any reunification of Taiwan, you know, maybe we might be feeling a little overly confident. But it did seem like they've been, you know, they they've were trying to bring a different game to the table in this case. Why do you think so? Uh, well, it, it, it could be... Uh since Biden is following up the G20 summit with these other summits in the region, uh, the U.S. ASEAN summit comes up at the end of this week, uh, followed by the East Asia summit. Uh, perhaps uh, people in the, the White House concluded that it would look better uh, to right. other regional governments uh, if we uh, had a more constructive and reasonable approach uh, in dealing with the Chinese, uh, maybe less hectoring, less uh, fewer demands. Uh, and 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 less of this uh, purely antagonistic rivalry talk uh, that has dominated so much of the, the discourse around China over the last couple of years, uh, because of course that's that's the the kind of talk that makes all of these other governments very nervous, right. because they don't want they know that they will be the ones stuck in the middle, they'll be the ones paying the price if that rivalry erupts into conflict, and so uh, it, it could be. I mean, I'm speculating. I don't have any. Uh, inside sources or anything, but I, I'm my guess is that the the White House wanted uh, to send a message to the wider region that the U.S. is prepared to be uh, cooperative if the Chinese uh, will also be uh, willing to work with them, uh, and that therefore the, the U.S. can be a a valuable partner to other countries in the region. Uh, they don't have to fear that they are being forced to choose, that they're being forced uh, to take our side against China uh, so that so that it will be a little bit easier for them to uh, to work with us without feeling like uh, they're being uh, caught between a rock and a hard place. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head there. I think the spirit of the G20 this year and the ASEAN grouping uh, meetings uh, coming, I believe they're this week or later this week. The weekend, yeah. The weekend. And then we have COP27 is still going on this week. I think the spirit of these confabs have been the global South is ascendant. It wants to be heard. It doesn't want to be bullied around. It doesn't like the idea of the West, particularly the United States, putting countries into blocks, you know, and setting them on this path of democracies versus autocracies, good and evil, when they too are suffering uh, from the repercussions of war and the sanctions and the, you know, the policies that have come mainly out of the West. And I think you're probably right. Uh, the the Biden administration's reading the room right, and they're saying, "Listen, this is not the time to, to start throwing our weight around on China, even though they might want to. They might have different feelings behind the scenes. It's all about perception." And a lot of the remarks that you see coming out of the, the G20 and these other these other meetings have been about the resistance of the global South to uh, Western domination and the seeking out of a more multipolar reality and saying, hey, your, your unilateral approach is old school and we're new school. So 
I think it might be chalked up to that. I'm not, that's not to detract from, you know, the good news or the optimism coming out of this. I think this is something that you and I have talked about so many times on the show and with all of our guests, that if the United States just took a more humble approach to this China question, that we might start digging our way out of what is has been looking like a, a new Cold War with China and a possible hot war with China. Right. And, and with uh, with Xi having consolidated his power uh, and, and secured another term as uh, leader, uh, uh, he may be in a more uh, receptive mood, be more willing to, to cooperate or accommodate Washington in, in certain respects uh, than he may have been before uh, when he was when that had not yet been secured for him. And so, uh, if if we are in some sort of Cold War setting now. Uh, and at least there is perhaps uh, an opportunity for the con. Uh, I saw a number of articles coming out this week at Foreign Affairs talking about uh, the, the Chinese government's uh, possible interest in a detente with the U.S. Uh, and that the, the U.S. should seize that opportunity uh, while it can uh, to, to cool things down and, and try to avert uh, the worst aspects of a Cold War rivalry. Next, we'd like to welcome Jim Antle, politics editor of the Washington Examiner, to the show. Jim was previously editor and my boss at the American Conservative, managing editor of the Daily Caller, and associate editor of the American Spectator. He is the author of Devouring Freedom, Can Big Government Ever Be Stopped? Welcome to this show, Jim. Thanks for having me, Kelly. Good to be here. Yeah, glad to glad to see you and hear you, and uh, looking forward to talking with you. Um, so... It looks like Republicans are going to take the House, albeit by a very slim margin. Last night, Axios reported that a number of conservative organizations, including Concerned Veterans for America, Defense Priorities, Americans for Prosperity, Freedom Works, and Heritage Foundation, signed a letter to Speaker Pelosi and uh, Leader Kevin McCarthy, urging them not to take up a reported $50 billion aid bill to Ukraine during the lame duck session. Among other reasons, they said it, quote, flouts the will of American voters whose mandate arrives to Washington in January with our newly elected officials. Moreover, it flagrantly disregards the fiscal constraints facing the country and its citizens amidst, amidst historic inflation, high fuel prices, and a $31 trillion national debt for which interest payments alone are expected to exceed U.S. defense spending by 2029. Beyond the obvious legislative and fiscal concerns facing Washington, not linking Ukrainian aid to matching agreements with Europe is strategically unsound, unquote. Jim, do you think the slim majority will actually help this effort? And if so, can you explain to the listeners the legislative process that might make it more beneficial for these conservative critics in the new House majority reality. Right. So, I mean, a, a big thing, a big dynamic at play here is that because the majority is going to be so small, 
House Speaker Kevin McCarthy presumed House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. We actually don't know that he's going to be speaker, but he's he is the current Republican leader. He is the likeliest speaker. Um, but whoever is the speaker, they're going to need to rely on the votes of factions of the Republican Party that maybe uh, if they had a, a majority with like 230 or 240 seats, they would have liked to sideline or ignore. So any outspoken group of lawmakers could potentially have an outsized influence because it's very difficult to get to 218 when 28 you don't really have that many votes to spare and that's both in terms of winning the speakership itself but also in terms of of passing any legislation and the house is a very leadership driven chamber unlike the senate where individual senators do tend to have a, a lot of influence and there are a lot of procedural things you can do to tie up the Senate, even as one member in the house, pretty much what the speaker says goes, even a lot of the committee chairs now are not as important as they used to be. Uh, so the whole process is very leadership driven, but if you don't have a very big majority and you don't have a lot of discipline among your members, things can get kind of hairy pretty quickly. And so there is a small, but potentially ascendant subset of Republicans who are skeptical of aiding Ukraine for a variety of reasons. Now, some of that is purely fiscal. And, you know, Republicans, even though they didn't do very well in the midterm elections, the ones who did win are going to feel that they have an anti-inflationary mandate. And so they're going to feel some uh, pressure to get federal spending under control. And even though the numbers uh, don't really add up, to, you know, the easiest thing to really take on is foreign aid, even though that's not as big as the entitlement programs or the regular defense budget. Um, those are the real big ticket items. But there are also people who vote and want those types of spending to continue in their states and in their districts and in their personal finances. So foreign aid is generally an easy target. Then there's also some Republicans who question the policy of a deepening U.S. involvement in the Russia-Ukraine war from anything from, you know, Joe Biden's warning about Armageddon over the use of nuclear weapons to just, you know, is this in the strategic interest of the United States to be this deeply enmeshed? Uh, you know, it, it, how important is Ukraine to U.S. interests, even if you generally sympathize with the idea that Vladimir Putin shouldn't be invading lots of other countries? So, that's not a huge number of Republicans, but it's more than there used to be. And for some, the fiscal concern is all that bothers them. And for others, the fiscal concerns are a gateway to talking about the foreign policy and strategic issue and, and, and kind of connecting with rank and file Republicans who aren't used to thinking in that way. Now, the fact that the MAGA Republicans are a little bit on their heels after the midterm elections, that, that people associated with former President Donald Trump, who for good or for ill, has played a pretty big role in starting restarting a foreign policy debate on the right, the fact that they're on their heels a little bit might be to the detriment of reevaluating uh, any Russia-Ukraine policy certainly might make the leadership uh, want to continue to marginalize those lawmakers. And certainly, I think uh, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell in particular 
is is very committed to make keeping that viewpoint marginal within the GOP. But you know the blank check comment that that Kevin McCarthy made. Kevin McCarthy is not somebody who really has uh, an unconventional foreign policy view for Republicans circa 1985, right? But he is a guy who can count votes. And so when he was talking about the blank check, we're not going to give Ukraine a blank check, he's reading the tea leaves and he realizes there's there's a sizable percentage of his conference that doesn't want to do that. So now some of them may be bought off by fairly minor uh, transparency concessions, but some of them might not be. And so he is he is sort of playing to that tendency within House Republicans because he just knows that these are votes that he needs to get things done and to get elected speaker. And he has to be sympathetic, at least somewhat, to their views. Now, that doesn't always make a big difference in terms of what the policy is, as we can remember with George W. Bush, you know, George W. Bush didn't want very many people to vote for Pat Buchanan as the Reform Party candidate in 2000. So he talked about a humble foreign policy. He talked about exit strategies. He talked about no nation building. That didn't really have a very big impact on what he did as president, though, as, as we might recall. So, you know, pandering can only get you so far if you're not really committed to a, a different view on foreign policy. But given the narrowness of the majority, you know, it can have an impact. And, and you know, if, if Republicans who really don't want to be spending this money, whether it's for foreign policy reasons or for anti-spending reasons, are really vocal about it, you know, that may be why some of this has to be done in the lame duck session uh, where Democrats still have the majority. And Democrats have a version of this dynamic, too, except the anti-war left, because partly because of all the Trump-Russia stuff and partly because Vladimir Putin, um, you know, is an illiberal figure and partly because some of them just don't want to make President Biden look bad. There really hasn't been a very vocal anti-war left on this front in Congress. Every Democrat in Congress voted for the $40 billion aid package. We're at a time where, you know, you would have thought like maybe a Rokana or a Barbalee would at least be part of a small rump of people who didn't, but they all voted for it. And then when the Congressional Progressive Caucus had a fairly measured letter saying that, you know, you know, Russia's bad, but we should maybe start nudging Ukraine and Russia toward the negotiating table, that letter ended up having to be withdrawn. And people were essentially, you know, sounding like Freedom Fries type saying, you know, you're giving aid and comfort to the enemy here. And it, it was withdrawn. So it shows that there's not a lot of appetite for this kind of fight on the on the Democratic side, particularly the House Democratic side. And whatever degree of fight will come from Republicans, and some of these Republicans, even though they're going to be blamed for why the elections didn't go very well, they're not going to be very chastened by that. And a lot of, you know, whatever, anytime you have one of these elections, usually it's somebody, it's the people on the more extreme sides of each party that survive competitive elections because they have the safest districts. So you would think parties would moderate after they have disappointing elections, but actually they usually don't because it's their more moderate members that all get defeated in these elections. And it's their least moderate members who are reelected and have power. So I think there's a real possibility that you'll see people like Marjorie Taylor Greene, for example, really push Kevin McCarthy on this issue. I mean, she's been saying not one more dime for Ukraine if Republicans take Congress. But obviously, I think the leadership and the committee chairs, the, the relevant committee chairs, are going to be pretty hawkish. 
they're going to be pretty hawkish for sure. So what, what is the goal of these several very prominent conservative groups in, in a lame duck to, when they know that it won't likely be defeated if a $50, you know, $50 billion package is brought to the floor, given the circumstances would probably not be defeated. What is their goal in, 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 in the, in the coming month or two in this lame duck session? Is it to set a stage for a future fight when they might have more leverage during this slim majority? Um, right. What is it? What does it all well, mean? You're laying down a marker, right? And so I think that what it means to be a conservative on foreign policy is in a state of flux that we really haven't seen since before 9-11. And to have groups that are recognized as being on the center right, the libertarian right, the populist right, all of those various elements of modern American conservatism saying that this isn't a conservative foreign policy uh, it can have an impact on newer members and members who are sort of looking to know where to go. You know, yeah. in the Bush years, it was just very obvious to most Republicans outside of a, a small handful, the Iran Pauls and your Jimmy Duncans, who, you know, whose lead should we be taking on foreign policy? And now that's much more of an open question than it used to be. So to uh, sort of have these people uh, have aid be associated with voting with Nancy Pelosi is a good way to brand it as something that's not conservative. Um, and so your average generic Republican might you know, then be in a better position to say, I don't want to vote for these aid packages. This is all part of the Biden, Pelosi, Schumer, big spending agenda at America first. And this doesn't benefit me. And my gas prices are higher and all of this kind of stuff. So it, it opens the door to have this argument when Republicans actually will be in control of some things, even though a lot of the leadership, particularly in the Senate, but also in the House, really really doesn't want to have that debate. You are so smart on this stuff, Jim. I'm so glad that you're on the show today to break this down because I'm always learning something with you. And I do think it's a benefit to readers to know what the political landscape is. We, you know, we're, we're so used to, to getting the broad brushed version of the, the horse race and whatnot, but it's just so much more complicated when you go into the process. And I don't want to um, dominate the conversation, so I'll, I'll let Daniel ask the question, and I got a few after him. Sure, thanks, Kelly. Uh, hi, Jim. Nice to have you on the show. Uh, it's good to talk good to, to you. Good to be here. And uh, so thinking more broadly, beyond the Ukraine issue, uh, as conservative foreign policy is up for grabs, as you say, uh, or the definition is up for grabs. Uh, what other issues do you see dividing Republicans in Congress and in Washington more broadly? Um, the, we, we know that there's a, a pretty strong bipartisan consensus around China issues. Uh, right. Most, mostly uh, a, a consensus around Europe and Russia, although obviously there's some disagreement at the margins. Uh, where, where do you see uh, divisions opening up? Well, you know, even among restraint-oriented conservatives, there's there is some disagreement over China. There are there are people who are dovish in most other areas who are pretty hawkish on China. And some of the Republican repositioning on foreign policy is reorienting away from an emphasis on the Middle East 
to a confrontation with China. And I think that the divisions on that are more among conservative intellectuals than they are among Republican elected officials. I think Republican elected officials are pretty squarely in a hawkish on China consensus. There are some differences at the margins in terms of what that looks like. And there are certainly some significant differences in terms of how much they would be willing to challenge U.S. and Chinese economic interconnectedness. Um, you know, there, there's definitely a lot of disagreement among Republicans on trade policy, for example, and on uh, former President Trump's China tariffs and whether those should be continued or whether those should be reversed. So that's that is a China issue where Republicans don't all sing from the same song sheet. But Kevin McCarthy does. He wants to have a select committee on China. He wants a lot of his key committee chairs to be China hawks from the maximalist end of that definition. But this has opened up uh, more disagreements among Republicans over how involved should the United States be in the Middle East, how strategically important is the Middle East other than for oil. Uh, you know, it, concepts of of nation building have always been controversial on the right, even though, uh, you know, going in and bombing has often been less controversial. Uh, nation nation busting is not as controversial necessarily. Uh, but I do think there's been a, a shift away from the idea of regime change wars. I think that, um, you know, a lot of the unrest that you're seeing in Iran, obviously the, the Bedian Republican lawmaker is very opposed to the current Iranian regime, but you don't hear the same talk of regime change at least as much as you might have during the Bush years, or you might have even during the early Obama years. I mean, the the there's sort of been some ambient sound around the Iran nuclear negotiations, and certainly if the Biden administration was able to re-enter that deal, overwhelming majority of Republicans would oppose it. But since the Biden administration doesn't seem to be very close to concluding a, a new deal, that's become a muted issue. And so you hear sort of vague expressions of sympathy for the women in particular who are protesting, um, much like you see people with the Ukrainian flag in their Twitter profiles and things like that. But it doesn't, unlike in the case of Ukraine, where we're talking about billions of dollars uh, and, 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 you know, some encouragement of Ukrainian military activities and armaments and things like that. This, this Iran stuff is mostly symbolic. I mean, there'll be some sanctions and probably more sanctions will be on the table. And that's an area where the, you could see the Biden administration try to go bipartisan because that's something that you could get a, a Republican controlled house to pass, I would think, fairly easily. Uh, so that would be an area where, where Biden could potentially work with Republicans in Congress. But in terms of, of it's not really so much Republicans, at least at the elected level, haven't really gotten to the point where these are debates about grand strategy and how to deal with various theaters and and Europe versus Latin America versus it, it's really more they're there's they're starting to grapple with just a, a fundamental question of what is the United States 
role in the world. And they're not maybe doing it in a way that's systematic or consistent or even maybe coherent, uh, certainly was the case in, in the Trump administration. But some of the framing of what the U.S. is an indispensable nation and filling uh, vacuums of illiberalism and uh, sort of the unipolar idea. Some of those things are, however, inarticulately being challenged on the right in a way that was inconceivable 10 years ago, outside sure. of libertarian circles. Sure, sure. Yeah, it's been it's been uh, spreading into more uh, mainstream GOP uh, talking points. Um Looking at especially at the Middle East, do you see any issues where some Republicans might break ranks and join Democrats in supporting anti-war measures in the new Congress, uh, something like a war powers resolution on Yemen uh, or Syria or or something like that? I mean, Yemen was the last really good example of left-right anti-war cooperation. Right, you had Congressional Progressive Caucus voting with Mark Meadows and Jim Jordan against the Trump administration, essentially. And Yemen is also a good example because that was not an issue where Trump was on the anti-war side or where Trump's leadership uh, lent itself to a lack of U.S. involvement in that war. So it was always easier for Republicans to take an anti-interventionist position if Trump even at least rhetorically sort of shared that view. Uh, with Yemen, that wasn't the case. Um I think it has gotten a little bit difficult now because, and I think Ukraine is an example of this, the fact that there really isn't a lot of democratic skepticism at this point of spending a, a, a big sum of money on Ukraine, uh, regardless of whether there's much in the way of diplomacy happening, is that because the ascendant wing of the Republican Party that is most skeptical of foreign policy interventionism is also the most toxic to their likely uh, allies on the progressive left, it's really made it very difficult for them to cooperate. Now, their opposition to one another isn't based on foreign policy. It's about other issues. And it's about the 2020 election. And it's about um, you know COVID. And it's about, it's about things like that. But it's created a discomfort. Now, I'm hopeful that when it comes to the Middle East, because you don't have a figure like Vladimir Putin, maybe some degree of collaboration would be possible. I, I think the fact that, you know, I think the Russian interference in the 2016 election, the fact that Vladimir Putin, whatever he is ideologically, is clearly not a man of the left. Um, I think that there is a small subset of the right that has sort of adopted Putin as a sort of Viktor Orban-like Figure because there are a lot of conservatives casting about abroad. The people who are most skeptical skeptical of intervening uh, overseas are looking for leadership examples overseas. Um, you know, I I think that Putin and Russia just make it very difficult for there to be a left right cooperation. So I'm hopeful that you know maybe on some things involving uh, you know the Middle East, maybe involving Iran. Um, at the same time, Iran is obviously an area where hawks in both parties would have a very easy time cooperating. And sanctions, sanctions against anybody are always very easy to pass because it, it, it's, it sounds like you're, you're, you're doing something 
and maybe you're not, but it, it doesn't come at the obvious cost of, of American lives. Um, but it allows you to make the statement that you're opposed to whatever some foreign government is doing. And, you know, sanctions are kind of like, you know, candy for, for kids. I mean, you kind of hand it out and, and, and everybody's going to eat it up. Um, so, you know, there have been in the past some bipartisan efforts to kind of rein in sanctions. I don't see that happening right now. But also, you know, I, the, the, the real, you know, $40 billion question is because the Republican Party is so leaderless right now and so rudderless, the possibility of somebody within this majority emerging as a leader does really open up a lot of possibilities. So, you know, for example, if, say, Chip Roy, a Republican congressman from Texas, who I think has some anti-interventionist instincts in foreign policy, even though he hasn't fully fleshed them out, which way he goes on certain things could end up having a major impact. Now, Marjorie Taylor Greene is somebody who's, uh, you know, not somebody who's going to be able to work very effectively with congressional progressives. Uh, but she certainly resonates with portions of the Republican base. So, you know, do people try to follow her lead or do you begin to see the more centrist elements of the Republican Party reassert themselves? But unfortunately, the more centrist elements of the Republican Party, because there's so much in reaction to Trump, uh, they don't want to see any rethinking of foreign policy. They, they think if we just go back to the way things were when nice guys like George W. Bush and John McCain and Mitt Romney were running the party, things were a lot better. That's their sort of diagnosis of where things went wrong under Trump. And so they're, they're going to be resistant, I think, to any kind of foreign policy reform, which wouldn't necessarily have been the case 10 years ago. That, that might have been the wing of the party that you would look to to maybe correct from some of the excesses of the Bush years. But I don't see that happening right now. Well, we are running out of time, but I have to ask, and, and I know by the time this program airs on, on Friday, we will know either way about whether or not Donald Trump has put in his bid for uh, the Republican nomination for president 2024. Does it make any difference if he does run for president? What happens to some of these foreign policy debates? Would it be different uh, with a Ron DeSantis holding the mantle for the GOP in, in 2024? I mean, Ron DeSantis is a big unknown on foreign policy, and I think he's kept it that way rather deliberately. So that is a huge question. And DeSantis does seem to be overtaking Trump, not only as a leader of the Republican Party, but a leader of as a leader of the America First movement. So that could have a very big impact on whether Republicans continue to entertain any interventionist ideas. I think Trump, because he was burned by guys like John Bolton uh, in his first term, his his team would be a relative neocon free zone the second time, uh, which is unthinkable uh, for a Republican president. Now, he didn't do very much to develop a talent bench that would be qualified to take these jobs, which was a huge 
flaw of his first term. And it's also possible that just the, a second term would be amateur hour across the board, you know, that he may be more interested in having, you know, Sidney Powell or someone as White House counsel in the event of an election challenge rather than, you know, people telling him, you know, there are constitutional constraints on what you can and can't do. But I mean, one area where you, you think of Trump is that Trump at least got the ball rolling on this debate. And he's had a real rift with the vast majority of the most reliable Republican hawks, Tom Cotton, I think being a, a big, and Lindsey Graham being two big exceptions, who've kept their lanes of influence with Trump open. Uh, but by and large, Trump might be a little bit sure of a bet on foreign policy at this point, despite being such a wild card across the board, than Ron DeSantis. We just don't really know him that much about his views. Okay. Well, will you come back on the show and break it down once we have a more a clear sight into who that nominee might be and how it might impact foreign policy? Absolutely. Awesome. Well, thank you, Jim, for coming on. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Good to see you guys. Thank you again for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack at crashingthewarparty.substack.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world, one episode at a time.